Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from 360 Learning, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm speaking with Paul Matthews, who's a learning and development expert, strategist, author, and speaker. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us. And thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. Paul, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Well, thanks. That's really good to be here. Uh, so, Paul, let's start, let's start with uh, um, the big question first. What is learning workflow and how is it different from workflow learning and learning in the flow of work? Oh, there's a good one. Um, I th- let's start with what people typically use, which is the, the, um, the workflow learning thing. <clears throat> I, please do excuse me if we're going through this and I cough a bit. I'm still on the tail end of my little dance with COVID, so I apologise <laughs> for that. Um, so learning in the flow of work is this is kind of learning as you go. It's performance support in the moment. It's the just-in-time stuff, mm-hmm. both informal and formal. I, I mean, we know from the 70-20-10 concept that it tells us that a lot of learning or most learning actually happens as we go about our daily tasks. Mm. In fact, sometimes I talk about that learning as a side effect of just doing what we do. Mm. Um, but it's not directed, um, although you can, you know, put micro-learning in place. There's lots you can do to kind of formalize some of it. Um, now, learning workflow is a different thing. So if you take a little step back and consider why we want learning to occur, I mean, uh, sort of what's the purpose of doing learning and development stuff? Mm. I do like that technical term stuff. Hmm. Um, ultimately, we're looking for people to do their jobs differently. We're looking for behavior change. And so what we need to do to generate that behavior change in a purposeful way is to give people a sequence of activities to do over a period of time because you're not going to change behaviour typically in a one-shot event unless you have some kind of road to Damascus conversion. But usually it takes people time and effort and energy over a period of time to embed and become habitual with some kind of new behaviour. So as soon as we talk about behaviour change, we need to be talking about a sequence of activities spread over time to achieve that. So I use the term learning workflow for an orchestrated sequence of activities that we've purposefully designed to achieve a specific behavioral outcome that we're seeking to get. And and of course, those activities could include things like learning, obviously. They they will include things like practice, they'll include feedback, they'll include reflection, and other activities that will embed that change of behavior. So a learning workflow is like any other workflow, it's, it's a sequence of things we do over time that's purposeful, orchestrated, designed, whereas just workflow learning or learning in the workflow or learning in the flow of work is just what happens as we're going about our day-to-day, whether we're seeking to learn or not, and whether there's a purposeful outcome or not. It's just the learning that happens. Mm-hmm. So, so does that kind of give you a bit of a separation of those two things and <laughs> disambiguate them, which is a lovely. <laughs> yes, well, uh, well, uh, well, I think it's a, it's a, it's certainly a good starter. But I'm going to represent the cynics who might be listening now uh, and ask you: um, Is this not just another L and D buzzword? And is it blended learning in a different guise? Um, well, of course, it's another L and D buzzword. We, we, mm. we, we love those things. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what I was trying to do was find a way of talking about the purpose of learning in most cases, which is that behavior change, and then Mm. thinking, well, how do we achieve that? 
And I kept coming back to something I started talking about in 2016, 2017. Then I kind of formalized it in my uh, learning transfer book in 2018. And that's when I kind of started publishing about this concept of a learning workflow. In other mm. words, a design sequence of things. Now, if you want to go call it something different, I don't care. Mm. Um, and, and yes, I suppose it is blended learning. But of course, blended learning is just giving people some content through different channels. Mm. We're still not really talking there about the different aspects that have to happen in order to get to that behavior change. Mm. So really what I'm doing is looking at the bigger picture of behavior change rather than the smaller picture of delivering content, mm. which is what people typically limit their L&D stuff to. Uh, and of course, Paul, the you know with uh, with with blended learning, some of the the criticism about it is is it's um it's a variety of different means in which learning and development deliver stuff. You're uh, going back to uh, to your yeah. uh, uh, your word before, whereas um where actual um development happens uh, in service of uh, of helping people to do the jobs and improve their prospects uh, and do what the organization requires of course they require some analysis uh, how to turn stuff into something useful it's about understanding what it is that people are expected to do what they're not able to do efficiently or effectively and then learning and development aligning uh, so that uh, so that it makes a, a meaningful difference. So so what kind of analysis is required to understand the needs uh, for development when it comes to uh, learning workflow? Well, I think the the first step is you've got to take again take that step back and saying why are we doing this L and D stuff? And if you talk to anybody in the business about that, not the L and D people, but the business people will say, I want people doing their job better in the role they're doing. Mm-hmm. I want them to be doing things differently. In other words, there's a gap between what they're doing now and what I would prefer them to be doing instead. That's what we want. And so learning and development needs to come along and say, okay, our role is to help people step up to the plate to, to, to do what they need to do when they're tasked with doing it in order to execute that organizational strategy effectively. Mm. So so really, learning and development needs to think a lot broader than just we're here to deliver content and training or whatever it is. We're here to help people step up to the plate and do their job. In other words, they have to get really clear about what behaviors people need to be doing on a regular, embedded, habitual basis to do the job they've been asked to do when they're asked to do it. Mm. And then they can say, okay, there's our target, is those behaviors. And then they're going to say, well, actually, how do we know those behaviors exist or not? And there must be a way of doing that because otherwise a manager would never come to L&D and say, I want you to do some training. In some way, that's, they must be observing something that indicates to them they're not getting the behaviors they want out of the people on their team. Mm. So in other words, there's already a kind of a set of criteria in place, which means a manager says people aren't doing things the way I want them to do them in an mm. ideal world. So what you've got to do is work with the manager and do a proper, what I call a behavioral needs analysis. And there's a new acronym, a new buzzword for you, a new three-letter, BNA. Mm-hmm. You've heard it first here, folks. Um, is I've been talking about this for quite a while now, is you've got to do this behavioral needs analysis to figure out what behaviors do we want at the end. More importantly, what behaviors are there now and what's the gap between where we are now and where we want to get people to. And then we have to figure out If they do cross that gap, how will we know they've crossed it? In other words, what will we observe? What will we see or hear or feel that will indicate to us that those people now have embedded and and within themselves and are just doing 
as the normal way of work, this new set of behaviors we want them to do. So what, what's the, how do we observe? We want observable behaviors. We want those uh, behaviors defined in observable terms. Mm. Otherwise, we don't know whether we've got them or not. So in other words, that's what the BNA or the behavioral needs analysis will produce is that list of behaviors that you've agreed with the managers is what will help them execute their strategy effectively. We need to define those behaviors in observable terms so that we have a set way of measuring whether we've got there or not. We need to have an idea of where we are now so we know what the gap is. We also need to look at what forces are restricting those new behaviors or limiting them or opposing them and what forces we can apply to promote them. Mm. So that's kind of Kurt Lewin's stuff around, you know, opposing and restraining forces on, on a change. You know, what are the barriers in the way of people doing these new things? I mean, it might turn out that they know how to do it. It's just that there's some cultural or, or, or procedural thing that's stopping them doing it. Mm. And they don't need to be learning anything at all. So that's where we've got to get deep into this diagnostics and say, what are we really out trying to achieve here? And, and this is where you start defining your outputs. And, of course, if you don't have a set of outputs defined in behavioural terms um, with observable criteria, you actually don't know where you're going. And most L&D um, initiatives I see don't have that. They don't have that defined endpoint. They might have we want people passing this test with 85%, but kind of who cares? Mm. I, I care what they do. Yeah, yeah and, and so, so with... Uh, with this, Paul, do you, do you uh, does it start and end with behaviours um, ra- rather than necessarily to to outcomes or outputs? Uh, and the way the way I define that is that uh, that uh, I believe learning and development um, uh, should be seeking to influence performance and uh, and outcomes. Performance is is how the work is done, and the outcomes are why the work is done. Uh, um, and of course, in in a uh, in a post COVID world, and I, I hate to say that you and I are both suffering from COVID, so it's not like it's actually uh, it's finished. But uh, it, in a in a world in which we are we are living with the ramifications of that and more remote working, um, observing behaviour is is much harder than it used to be, and so um, so much more uh, emphasis is placed on uh, on actual outcomes. Uh, have I m- misinterpreted that, um, or or is or is this really uh, about the observable behaviour? I think in terms of outcomes or observable things, I'm not just talking about you observing a person typing on their computer or talking to a colleague. Clearly, some of the things you can observe would be a spreadsheet or a bank balance or mm-hmm. some numbers or something like that. So it's not just seeing that person do stuff. It's also seeing some specific things that might come out of what they do. Mm. Um, so it does cover all of that as well. That's the observable things that indicate the behavior that's happened. Um, you know, sometimes we can't see something directly. And an analogy I sometimes use for that is remember the old experiments at school where you had a, a piece of paper with iron filings on top and you put a magnet underneath. Mm-hmm. And the teacher get, used to get really annoyed if you managed to get the iron filings on the magnet because they're then almost impossible to get off the magnet. Yeah. Um, but you move the magnet and the filings move. Now, looking down on the paper, you can't see the magnet, but you can deduce where it is or what it's doing or how it's moving by the way that the filings line up. Mm. So, so in other words, you've got some observable behaviours, but you're not observing the magnet directly. So there's also this need to be able to define things in, uh, in terms of a set of criteria you can observe 
and that may or may not be a direct observation. Mm. Um, so I'm including that in there, if you like. So yes, it does also mean I am observing this KPI changing, um, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, but but ultimately, what you've got to do is, and I think it's really important, you 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 define those behaviours with a set of criteria that are observable, whether that's direct or indirect. Because mm. uh, if you don't have that observable set of criteria, you don't really have a way to measure whether you're getting what you want. Um, so yes, it is about behaviour change and you're using a set of criteria to um, judge whether that behaviour change has occurred in the way that you want. Now, clearly, alongside and beyond that, you can start saying, given that we now have this behaviour change, has that had the knock-on effect we wanted on the bigger KPIs in terms of making sure the strategy's been executed and we're getting the numbers out of the other end that we wanted. Um, now, that's kind of not, to my thinking, L&D's job. That's much more about the management job. So they can say to L&D, we want people doing the job this way, and that's what we want. And then it's, and, and it's up to them in a way to define those behaviours and define the way they want the job done. L&D's j- job is to step up and say, right, our, our job is to deliver on this new set of behaviours you want. And, of course, if the management requested the wrong set of behaviours, they're not going to get the results that, are, that they want um, in terms of strategy execution. But that's not L&D's problem. And I think too often what happens is management comes and said, people aren't doing their job, give them management training, give them this, give them that. But there isn't any clarity over those outcomes. Mm. There really isn't. And so nobody ends up being able to really say, have we been successful or not? And, and, and who's responsible if we weren't? Um, and I think that's a real problem. If you want to know how to make collaborative learning work in your organisation and demonstrate real results, then check out my new masterclass video series. There, you'll understand how to achieve sustained engagement in your learning tech in a way that leads to improved performance. We'll also explore many of the objections L&D face when introducing something new, based on decades of experience I have of making L&D really work inside organisations. You'll find my masterclass series on the 360 Learning blog, and you'll also find a link in the show notes. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, and I think that's the uh, that's the gap that uh, data and evidence based practice plays, isn't it? Where if you're responding to a critical point of failure that's both recognised by managers and those who expected to deliver results, and you can see that as data that that this is this is a problem that is being keenly experienced, then you work with the employees themselves to understand the points of friction that they are experiencing in service of their deliverables uh, and in that way you work with them i think it is an outdated mode that uh, that it's working with the managers to define the behaviors without the input of those expected to do the work to deliver a solution and expect people to change i think that that that's that's decades of learning and development um uh, uh i'll use the analogy bart simpson in the simpsons uh, trying to grab the electrocuted cupcake again and again and again and not learning that every time he's still going to be electrocuted um, I think that, uh, that, that, that a gap there in analysis has been bringing people with us before they experience a solution uh, to understand how it, how it links to what it is that they're expected to do in the organisation. I suppose if you're designing for the workflow, um, you're, you're seeking the evidence from, uh, from the employees themselves as well. 
Absolutely. And that's all part of that behavioural needs analysis. When that's done right, all the different stakeholders get involved, not just mm. the managers. It's, it's vital that you also talk to those who are doing the job. And as you say, to find out what the friction is or what I term barriers, mm. you know, what's stopping them doing what we want them to do. So you say to them, okay, here's the set of behaviours we want you to be doing. What's stopping you doing those right now? Why can't you start doing those tomorrow? Mm. And, and, and it's about then start digging into, well, I need to learn something, I need to do this, or quite frankly, John over in the finance department never gives me the paper on time, so how the hell can I ever do that behaviour mm. when I don't get the input I need in order to do that behaviour? Mm. Um, so, so there's that whole diagnostics piece. That was, you know, one of my books was about that. The second book I wrote mm. um, was on that whole performance diagnostics process, um, which is critical that you have up front. Yeah. So, so Paul, um, let's let's get to the nuts and bolts. How do you design for a workflow, and what types of activities uh, would you would you include in uh, in learning workflow? Well, I think, I mean, how do you design? You start with a behavioural needs analysis. Don't don't please don't start with an LNA or a TNA. You might want to do them later, but quite frankly, they're a waste of time until you've done that behavioural diagnostics up front. Um, you really, really must. Because as soon as you do an LNA or a TNA, you start thinking about content mm-hmm. and curriculum, and then you're down the wrong path. What you've got to do is start thinking about the behaviours that you want, and then you can say, in order for those behaviours to be to occur and for us to deliver them to these people, what skills do they need to practise? And then given they need to practise those skills, what knowledge might they need to practise them effectively? And then how do we feed those things into them over time so they can go through a sequence of activities? And that starts to build the concept of the workflow you need. And what you're really saying is, if this employee is here and we want them to behave over here differently instead, what's the gap they've got across from their current behaviour to the new desired behaviour? And then what are the barriers to that gap? And so... This means you've got to do that diagnostics process up front to discover the present and desired states, um, also what might restrain them. And then you can start looking at the workflow they need, all the tasks they have to do. Alongside that, you need to be saying, well, how do we reduce the barriers or the friction, as you called it, to them actually making those changes? Now, sometimes they can actually, as part of the tasks of their workflow, they can actually affect their environment to reduce those barriers themselves. Other times it's going to have to be someone else, which might be their manager, or it might even be something much bigger, like the, I don't know, I, I mean, perhaps a, um, an incentive scheme they're on needs to be changed because currently the financial incentives for sales is pointing them in the wrong direction. Um, so who needs to get involved? Uh, what's all the list of, of stakeholders? Um, but in terms of things you might put into a workflow, Really, it's going to depend on what you're seeking to achieve by the workflow, whether that's kind of better feedback skills or a much more complex one that might be related to, say, management behaviours and so on. But Mm. what sorts of activities? Typically, it's going to be things like experiment with a new idea, practice that new idea, reflect on your success at using it, study it a little bit, do a bit of research, collaborate with colleagues, discuss with people. It, it's all of those sorts of things. And it, and basically you're going to – another way to talk about that actually is to look at someone who's already crossed that behavioural gap, someone who was there and has got good and is now over there and where the, this, this place we want them to be. 
So you can say to them, well, how did you cross that gap? What did you learn? What did you do? What did you practice? What are you thinking? So it's almost like modeling exemplars who have already made that change mm. and thinking, well, what's good about and, and what worked for them maybe will work for other people. And if you model several people, you can then start teasing out what's idiosyncratic to individuals and what's a common theme that they've all done. And that's how you can start designing a workflow is another way to, to look at exemplars who've actually already done the journey. Mm. So if we're looking at saying, um, if I think of, uh, of, of something quite common in organisations, uh, people promoted to new management, um, in the vast majority of the cases, they're neglected by the learning and development department, not, not perhaps willfully, um, uh, because there's, there's quite often an LMS um, uh, filled full of generic content. But of course, when you make the step up, say, uh, to a marketing manager in a particular organisation, there, there are uh, specific expectations, both cultural and technical, that means that um, a one-minute manager or a, a 45-minute uh, e-learning module uh, that doesn't relate to both either your organization, to marketing, uh, or to the, the current level of experience that the individual has, which means that they are actually being left to their own devices. Um, then what what's happened, what usually happens is uh, they'll they'll... Um, uh, find out what their expectations are. They'll receive some expectations from uh, explicitly and uh, perhaps um, uh, implicitly uh, from their team, from their line manager, from stakeholders, from clients, um, that they will do their best. They will perhaps role model others. They might get a buddy. Um, they'll receive uh, some feedback uh, later down the line, perhaps six, nine, 12 months later, they might go on a, a, on a program to help provide a frame to the experience that they've had during that time. But largely, they've been left to their own devices. And it's through bumping up against the culture and all of the, the, the major actors that they learn how to do the job, well or not. Um, how would um, learning workflow support uh, new managers in that example or what analysis would you do that that would be supporting people where they're largely neglected by a system that is that is accepted in uh, in learning and development now that, that's a really good question and actually learning workflows are ideal for this kind of scenario provided they're following an analysis of the sorts of things that well, you call it a new marketing manager or someone new into either a supervisor or even a midline role so really you're talking about onboarding them into that role, whether they're new to the company or not, to help them pick up all the things they need to pick up. And there's going to be a, quite a few of them, I would have expected. Mm -hmm. So, And some of them will be particular for that role and some of them will be more generic. So really what you've got to do is saying, for someone moving into this role, just, let's just say for argument's sake, it's a supervisor role. Um, you can say someone moving into a supervisory role in this company um, will need to be able to do these things. And notice I said do these things, not know these things. Mm -hmm. um, so when you, you're talking about doing and behaviours, so they need to do these things. And actually some of them they need to be able to do within the first couple of weeks. Some of them they might not need to really do much about until three or four months. So then that starts to give you a sequence of things they need to be exposed to from the day they start that role onwards over the first maybe six months or so. And so what you might well do with a learning workflow is trickle in 
some bits of information and some things for them to experiment and practice with each week for six months. So maybe 26 weeks or something. And, and I've seen this work and work very well in some both large manufacturing and technical companies. So this isn't, this isn't just out of the top of my head. This mm. is a program that I've seen work and that actually we run with some of our clients on our, on our software as well is a six-month program that will get a new starter into a management role, whether that's a supervisor or a line manager, started with the things they need to know now and then next week and then the week after and so on in a sequence that doesn't overwhelm them with stuff but gives them really practical things that will keep stepping them up towards where they need to be. Mm. Um, because hopefully they've been promoted to that role because of their potential, not because they can do it already. And actually, you're seeking them to grow into that role. Now, later on, you might send them on some on a more complex training course on emotional intelligence or some specifics. But initially, it's a lot of the practical day-to-day -day stuff they've got to wrap their head around. Mm -hmm. And you can set up a learning workflow to help them with that as they go through it, with specific activities to think about and reflect on as they go. Um, that will help them step up and do what they need to do. And, um, uh, and that was my example there, Paul. But I, want, I wonder, are there uh, any other, um, uh, say, learning development initiatives that, that where, where learning, um, learning workflow has a sweet spot, whether it is onboarding people, whether it is um, uh, helping with other periods of transition or uh, where uh, people are expected to adapt or, you know, you've been suggesting with, you know, behaviour change suggests some element of fixing um, uh, the way that work is done you know, within a, a given team or organisation is there is there a particular sweet spot to help the listener to frame when when this is most applicable? I, I think it's where behaviour change is required rather than memorise stuff. Mm. Um, now, if all you want people to do is memorise stuff, um, or perhaps to learn to do, uh, you know, uh, SQL query um, creation in, in for coding. There's things like that where it probably wouldn't work so well. Mm. Um, but wherever you're seeking to change people's behaviours, wherever you're seeking to keep track of how they're doing that, um, and so this could be onboarding either for new starters or onboarding into a new role. Um, we've certainly got a lot of experience in our company with all of that, thousands and thousands and thousands of users. Um, the, the other places where you are looking at short pieces that um, are specific to a specific skill. Um, we've done some work with a council in London around feedback skills. We're doing some work right now with a, uh, an NHS hospital on clinical competencies and other bits like that, where the little short workflows that might only last a couple of weeks, three weeks, four weeks, but within that is what someone needs to do and then some assessment and um, ways they can demonstrate their competence to others and get signed off on a particular thing, like venipuncture, you know, drawing blood for, for um, uh, testing, for example. Mm. There's, there's, they've got to do that. And then they've got to go back and re reiterate that after three years, for example. So th there's lots of areas where wherever you have the need for people to do a sequence of actions over time that has some kind of learning aspect to it, then you can look, use a learning workflow. Mm. Um, so that's really, so it's not like there's a sweet spot in terms of a sector or a particular thing you're trying to teach. It's just 
if what you're doing will benefit from a sequence of actions spread over time, and you need to hold people responsible for doing those actions, otherwise they're not going to get to the end point. Um, one analysis or analogy I sometimes use is the concept of the sat-nav. If you think for a moment, when you put a destination into your sat-nav, let's say it's Edinburgh, um, if you follow the instructions that the AI at Google um, creates for you, then you're going to get to Edinburgh. You're guaranteed to get to Edinburgh. You cannot not get to Edinburgh, provided you follow the instructions. Mm. So as soon as you have an, a known endpoint, and we're talking about the output from this BNA, this behavioral needs analysis, that's the unknown endpoint. Um, when you then design an appropriate and um, fit-for-purpose sequence of step-by-step -step turns or instructions like the SATNAV does, and then the people follow those instructions, they're pretty much guaranteed to get to the endpoint. So if you want guaranteed behavior change, those are the three things that need to be in place. A good definition of where you're going to, a sequence of actions that will enable people to definitely get there, and then to hold them accountable for doing those actions, because clearly if they don't do them, they're not going to get there, or most unlikely to. So really it's about how do you then manage that? So there's a design aspect to it, and there's some ways you have to think about that, which is a little different to some of the ways that L&D thinks about traditional design, because now you're talking about design over a time period, which means you've got to start thinking about um, cognitive and, and uh, loadings across that time and balancing that out, and also how much activity you give to people. You need to balance that out and spread it over time. So there's some, some sort of an extra little bits of design thinking that need to be brought in when you're talking about learning workflows. But the, the outcome is well worth it because you're starting to talk about guaranteed behavioral outcomes. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and and you you mentioned earlier, so 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 um, staying on uh, on outcomes, uh, you mentioned about uh, the 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 measure of success uh, of a of a learning workflow intervention is the observable behaviour change. So, what what models or mechanisms do you uh, advocate to uh, to measure that? Um, my my preferred route is to is a multi rater type tool. Now, uh, because you see. If, I mean, if you had a gymnast, you wouldn't ask the gymnast in a competition to, you know, hold up the scorecard and give themselves a score and, and, and assume that was honest. You've got a panel of judges who already have a, a, a quite complex set of criteria on what good looks like. Mm. And then they hold up their scorecards and it gets average out. And you said, okay, then we can, we can give some ranking to this competitor or this, this, this person. Now, it's pretty much the same. You, you will end up after a BNA with a set of criteria which will describe to you when that behavior is in existence or not or how far towards it you are. And you need a number of people who are going to have to observe that from different angles. So some kind of multi-rater tool is what you need. It doesn't have to be very complicated. It's this simple one. We use them already in our system. And effectively what you're looking at there is a Kirkpatrick 3 level evaluation across a program which spans time, which is kind of a little unusual because normally the Kirkpatrick's about, you know, following up an event-based thing. Mm. But if you talk about time and you do some sort of multi-rater behavioral thing at the beginning of a program, you know, what are we observing now as a set of colleagues looking at Donald over there in the corner or whatever or Sally? And then after six months, you can then give all those people the same questionnaire and saying, 
how are they behaving now after six months of being on this program or four months or whatever it is? Uh, so then you've got actually a pretty clear and, to, and largely unbiased uh, way to measure that behavioral change. Mm-hmm. And if the behaviors you ask have, have produced are the correct ones in terms of executing the strategy, then you'll see an uptick on all the KPIs and numbers that are measuring the strategy success. Great. And um, uh, as a Paul, as we look to uh, to wrap this up, if the listeners keen to experiment with uh, with learning workflow, how do you recommend they get started? Um, well, I've, I've written about it in a number of places. From um, I think there's an ebook I've got out recently, maybe the quickest and easiest, and obviously cheapest because it's free way to get started. Mm. So grab onto my website or the company one, and you can download that ebook for free. And that talks about the behavioural needs analysis. It talks about how you might design a workflow, how it might cycle effectively through a sequence of weeks, for example, um, and how you might stitch that together. Um, and, and so that would be the place that I would start is that ebook um, on it. I, I wrote that originally just after the pandemic started, talking about, well, how do we design now in this new world? Mm. And I updated it actually um, just late last year. Um, but quite frankly, the, the stuff in there, we should have been doing this years ago. It's not really just because of the pandemic. But I think what's happened with the pandemic is it's loosened a lot of the cement around the way that L&D is operating mm-hmm. um, because we were forced to go virtual. We were forced into all sorts of things. Um, and so now we've got this wonderful opportunity to take advantage of that loosening of the constraints on how we operated and we can start proposing and doing different things mm-hmm. in this new world. So um, so that would be the place to start. Um, and but also you know find me and ask me questions i'm really happy to talk about this stuff so wonderful and if uh, the listener would like to to do that what's the the best way to get hold of you paul well you can uh, find me on linkedin uh, easily enough and um you know message me with any questions you have there um otherwise visit our website at peoplealchemy.com mm-hmm. um, or my personal website at paul-matthews.com which is where you can either of those sites you can get those downloads and there's other videos and all sorts on them um, so you know do have a look but any questions just drop me a line on LinkedIn I'd love to hear wonderful uh, we'll put some uh, some links in the show notes um, so Paul uh, all's left to say is thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development podcast oh it's been great I love standing on the soapbox so thanks for the opportunity <laughs> thanks Paul Paul's model for learning workflow is another example of linking the efforts of L&D directly to the work itself This leaves less interpretation and contextualization for those we seek to influence, and that can only increase the chances of us achieving desired outcomes that make a meaningful difference. If this conversation has whet your appetite for good quality L&D chat, and you'd like to get involved, you can now join the L&D Collective, of which I'm an active member. Join me and hundreds of L&D peers via the link to the L&D Collective in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn for which you'll find the links in the show notes. And goodbye for now.